My name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier Proton Let's Go podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have watched the sci-fi thriller? I, I'd go with that, yeah. Knowing. And before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Uh, Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. I've seen four movies in the cinemas this week to start off with. Uh, we begin with Bros, which is a romantic comedy directed by Nicholas Stoller. It's about Bobby, played by Billy Eichner. He's an, an outspoken guy with commitment issues. He meets Aaron, played by Luke McFarlane, who is very different from his usual type. He is kind of, as the title suggests, a bro, but sparks fly between them and they start to form a romantic attachment to each other. This is very funny, very fun. I mean, a lot of press has been made about out of the fact that this is the first gay romantic comedy from a major studio. Theatrically released, I should say, there has been other ones. I mean, Happier Season was a few years ago, but this is the first one that's gotten a big theatrical release from a major studio. And it embraces rom-com tropes while also poking fun at them. It's got a very keen eye and a keen wit to it. It's co-written by Billy Eichner as well. And it's got a lot on its mind. It's very much come into this whole, or approached the whole thing as being like, if we're going to make a gay rom-com, then let's make a gay rom-com that actually explores the complexities of gay relationships and just doesn't transpose the idea of straight relationships and just with two members of the same sex. So it's like, there's this whole opening monologue that Bobby has, which is he records this podcast. And so it's part of this podcast, but he says in it, he says, love is not love, which, and what he means by that, and he goes into it more is that like, it's this whole thing of relationships being just the same, but and the sentiment is there. Okay, good. But like, that's not the reality of it. There are differences in straight relationships to compared to gay relationships. It's, you know, it's a different dynamic. It's, you know, a different, set of circumstances and things that need to be dealt with. And so that's really something that the movie goes deep into is these ideas of, you know, masculinity and gayness and outness and all of this sort of stuff that uh, I suppose gets swept under the rug whenever you see gay relationships in other stories that when they're told generally by straight people. And that's really interesting because it gives it, like I said, Billy Eichner co-wrote this and there's this feeling of authenticity to a lot of the storytelling and the characters and the comedy it feels very authentic and that gives it a great personality of its own and it also touches on some interesting disagreements in the gay community how you know there is this sort of activist collective in the gay community because they need to fight for everything they get basically but at the same time there's disagreements on representation on presentation on the best way to handle things and it's interesting that Eichner has chosen to tackle all of that stuff within this. And it's it's a very canny sort of delving into romantic comedy archetypes and sort of relationship tropes that we see so many times in so many other movies and sort of investigating them on a in an interesting new way. I mean, the whole movie is peppered with rom-coms playing in the background. I mean, you've got male playing on the TV in the background of a scene or, you know, endless parodies of like hallmark christmas movies that bobby is obsessed with them but at the same time kind of hates them and <laughs> like it's it's playing on these archetypes and turning them around and turning them over in a really interesting way but it's all that and it's a great character piece as well it's 
really well written, really well acted. Uh, Eichner and McFarlane are fantastic. Eichner is particularly impressive. There's this big monologue that he gets in the middle of the movie that is the best scene in the movie, and it is basically where, you know, there's no jokes at all. The, the character is basically just sort of talking about who he is and why he is the way he is. You know, he's, he's basically his his MO on life, his manifesto, and it feels almost like Eichner's breaking character. You know, it feels almost like, okay, I'm not watching Bobby anymore. I'm This is Eichner talking to the audience as himself almost, and it's a very impressive piece of acting. But the script is extremely witty. It's frequently very laugh out loud. It gets a lot of fun gags out of, again, that feeling of authenticity, that feeling of the community telling the community's story and the collegiality that comes from that. It feels very familiar and relaxed in that way. But yeah, it's a pity it bombed. I know Billy Eichner has taken some flack publicly for saying in interviews that homophobia was probably a big part of that. And I tend to agree with him it was i mean i tried billy i did my part but um i mean i was in this and admittedly it was on a weekday morning but it was me another woman about my age and a woman in her 80s by herself mm. yeah and that was like literally the day after it came out here in australia so it's yeah it's unfortunate everyone was going to see black adam instead which i saw next and who uh it's a superhero movie directed by jean collet sarah it's based on the DC Comics character of the same name, and it is set in the fictional Middle Eastern country of Kandak, uh, where the legendary warrior Teth Adam, played by Dwayne Johnson, is this legendary figure of mythology, this champion that once once saved the country many thousands of years ago. And what we learn is that he is one of the Shazam people with the Shazam powers given by the Council of Wizards, and he's been in hibernation or something. We will learn more about that as the plot goes on, but he's not been around for a long time until he is summoned in the present day to fight a military dictatorship. Well, is it military? Is it a company? I don't know. The movie doesn't seem to know because it never, ever tries to explain it. Don't bother giving me an explanation, Harley. I, I can see you just chomping at the bit there. The movie doesn't do the legwork, no, so I don't no, care. No, it doesn't. It All it says is it's intergang. Yeah. It's a group of international criminals who are using their resources. I thought that was pretty clear. Not really. Because they talk about it as if it's a military, but then also as if it's like a company. And you're telling me that the international community's done nothing if an international gang of criminals has taken over an entire country? I mean, it's not like another country has invaded a country, but it's like, no, just like random criminals have taken over a country? Like a bunch of mercenaries or some shit. And they're called intergang? Jesus Christ. Intergang is a thing from the comics. There are some things that should be left in the comics, though, Sean. But anyways, the international heroes are alarmed not by intergang, this apparent gang of international criminals taking over an entire nation and subjugating its people, but instead the appearance of Black Adam because they're worried about his tactics, so they head in to sort that out. As you can probably already tell, I don't like this movie. I, I don't understand what's going on over there it's like dc is stuck making superhero movies from 2003 it's like everything except what they're doing with the batman character so the batman and joker everything except that for the last like four or five years now have has been stuff that i would have expected to see 
in the early 2000s, like your Daredevils or your Fantastic Four and things like that. I just had a hard time caring about any of it. I mean, they're stick figure characters. They're, there's barely any personality there, barely any dimension there to any of it. What is Kandak as a country? Why is this f- the first time we're hearing about it? What is its culture? What is its history? Again, what is Intergang? Who are they? Where do they come from? What do they want? I mean, the movie doesn't do the legwork. And I compare it to something like Black Panther in the MCU, which did a similar thing of introducing a new nation with its own history and its own hero attached to that history. And just the world building in that is just like night and day compared to this. The most interesting thing about it is how it flirts with saying something about US foreign policy or about, you know, Western foreign policy, more like in, in, in regards to the Middle East or, or, you know, basically the broader international community that, you know, they turn up when it's in their best interest to you know, talk about liberation, freedom and shit, but they're perfectly fine to just, or we, I should say, are perfectly fine to just let people suffer until it actually becomes our problem in some way. It flirts with saying something about that, but it never does. It never actually commits to that idea and delves into it at all. I don't understand why everyone's talking about Black Adam as some sort of, like, awesome badass. I don't think that's demonstrated within the film. He's powerful, for sure. But, like, the idea that this guy is some, you know, incredible figure of unstoppable nature and, you know, he's he's killing all these people and he's so hardcore, I, it's just not reflected in the story they've told. And partly I think that is the decision to stick to a PG-13 rating that they've gone with. I think part of it is, frankly, the decision to meld Black Adam to the star persona of Dwayne Johnson rather than the other way around. But basically, I don't get what what all the hubbub is about this guy within the movie. He's just kind of a shell. All of the characters are. And then the Justice Society turn up, and they're like this sort of international group of... They're basically the Justice League with training wheels. They turn up, and they're like there to solve the problem or whatever, and it's, it's Hawkman, and it's Dr. Fate, and it is Cyclone and Atom Smasher. And I'm sitting there, and they're all under the command of like, Amanda Waller. And I'm sitting there thinking, where the hell have you guys been? Because I've been watching like, what, 10 movies in this continuity now? Like alien invasions and, you know, Metropolis almost getting destroyed and all of this nonsense. Storo. And and they've just been fucking sitting there doing nothing. All of that wasn't enough. But like Dwayne Johnson turns up in Kandak and all of a sudden, oh shit, we've got to jump into the fray here. Like it's... It's absurd. I do like how she doesn't bother sending the squad in because it's like they're useless. They'll just end up working with him anyway. So, well, but these people are useless too. Like, I don't know what is what it is about the Hawk-related superheroes, but why are they all so boring? Like, like what? Like Hawkeye, Hawkman. I mean, what is it about Hawks that makes them so apparently ill-suited as a as a super superhero-related animal? They're just not as cool as eagles. Well, for me, I think he was less interesting because they never talked about backstory. Because Hawkman is a character who, like, consistently resurrects. Well, they never talk about anything in the movie, Harley. Like, they don't go into any of it. And, I mean, I, I think the problem that they have with Hawkman is he's just so talking about, oh, justice, heroes don't kill. And he's just so, like, bloody... It's, again, it, it ties into that fact that they're not supporting all of the big build-up about Black Adam. 
So when Hawkman comes in talking nothing, like just scowling all of the time and talking about how dangerous Black Adam is, I'm like, kind of just like, okay. I mean, Pierce Brosnan, I texted you coming out of this movie, Pierce Brosnan is carrying this whole thing on his back. Like, I wish I was watching a Doctor Fate movie instead of a Black Adam slash Justice League Society movie. Because then they could have really delved into, like, the Doctor Fate side of things, which is really interesting. And everything that that character, all of the interesting stuff about that character comes from Brosnan's performance. It comes from his interpretation of this guy who can see the future and how awful that would be in a lot of different ways. Mm. He's always got, like, one foot in the future. Yeah, it's a really interesting, really considered performance. He's playing this guy as just tired of knowing what's going to happen. Like, he talks at one point about being a young kid and seeing people go off to fight in the First World War, and he knew instantly that those people weren't coming back. He knew, he saw what was going to happen to them, and he is just tired of being able to do that. Well, that's the other thing that they don't really get into and really like. I I, I realised, like, probably 90% into this movie, wait, this guy's supposed to be 100-plus years old? He looks like Pierce Brosnan. Apparently the helm keeps him young. Yeah, there's like some throwaway line there, and yeah. yeah. It doesn't matter if they just chuck in a line to explain it. If it's not supported by any groundwork or foundation at all, there's a problem here in the presentation of this movie that I feel really gets away from it in the sense that it's, I suppose what it is, it's just a lack of detail. You know, there's a lack of detail, lack of commitment, a lack of characterization. It's... Pieces being moved around a board. It's stuff happening because it should happen. It's characters coming in because it would be interesting to use this character and everything. But it's not committing to any of it. It's not actually taking the time to take those ingredients and turn it into a story that has things that you care about in it. And it's just kind of this empty thing. And it's and it's the more I think about it, the more unimpressed I get with it. I mean, I haven't even talked about Adam Smasher and Cyclone because they are stereotypes in suits you know they have blank space as characters and i'm sure that they have a really interesting history in the comics and i'm sure that there's a really uh i'm sure that there's a better presentation out there but this movie doesn't do it just like it doesn't do a more interesting presentation of conduct just like it doesn't do a more interesting presentation of hawkman or the justice society or black adam himself i mean it looks generic as well it looks I mean, it's all covered in yellow-brown filters, because how else will we know it's set in the Middle East? I just don't understand what the hell they're doing over there. I feel like, I mean, there's that news story a little while ago now, a few days ago, that James Gunn is going to be one of the people running this thing. That gives me hope. I feel like, at this point, he should probably just turn it all off and on again. Like, again, I just... I can't get excited coming out of this movie about Black Adam turning up in future installments. And they certainly try and tease that in the mid-credit sequence and they're trying to set something up. And it's just like, why should I care about this? I've watched this movie for over two hours. You've given me no reason to commit. And I don't know, I just, I'm beyond the point of exasperation with the DCEU stuff. I think there's so much interesting stuff and they keep doing this instead. Anyways, rant rant over. I next saw a far better movie called Barbarian, which is a horror movie directed by Zach Kreger, and it follows a young woman named Tess, played by, played by Georgina Campbell. She's in Detroit for a job interview. 
she gets a pretty cheap Airbnb on like the outskirts out where the economic collapse of the city has left everything sort of boarded up hellscape kind of kind of deal. Sort of like where the blind guy's house is. in in Don't Breathe. But uh, she turns up there. It turns out that the Airbnb has been double booked by accident with uh, a man named Keith, played by Bill Skarsgård. And all of the hotels in the city proper are booked out because of a convention that is on. And Keith invites her to just stay the night and they'll sort it out. She's nervous, but she agrees. Uh, But when she gets in there, she discovers a secret passage hidden in the basement of the house, and shit gets wild. I texted you right after coming out of this movie. I said, this is a shadow in the cloud situation. This is a full-on red alert. I mean, we've talked a bit about before about what makes a shadow in the cloud situation. It, It sort of implies a kind of wildness and mania that is specific to our tastes, yeah, you know, something something like Malignant, where exactly. it's just sort of... Malignant is a shadow in the cloud situation. The night house isn't. Yeah. Mm. It, it feels like there's you get maybe one or two shadow in the cloud situations every year. Yeah, like, a uh, shadow in the cloud situation implies an excess of style and a buck wild decision being made at least partway into the film. Yes. So something like a you rec- you said that bullet train was a shadow in the cloud situation. I did. I didn't really push it that far because I I I do think it is a shadow in the cloud situation, but I I also think that it doesn't quite reach that reach that red alert status. Hmm. There were di- there were different DEFCON levels. Yes, yeah. let's say there are different DEFCON levels. I tend to keep my powder dry. I've come out of three movies being like you guys. You guys need to see this shit. Like it was shadow in the cloud, then malignant, and now this because. This is like the full on. I I can't say much. I need to be careful. Of course, because this is a movie that just keeps flipping the script on you every time you think you figured it out. It's like, aha, uh-huh, no, 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 wait, check this out, and it does this whole other thing instead, and it just keeps getting more and more interesting. I don't want to run the risk of overstating it either, because I think that's also a a, a potential thing. But it, it it is constantly thinking of. What is the weirdest choice? What is the most like insane thing? What would totally rupture everything at this point if we did it? And um, that is something it does multiple times over over the course of the movie. It's an excellent use of Bill Skarsgård because, you know, he could go either way. I mean, he's this awkward guy. He's kind of flirting with her. And you're kind of thinking, well, he could just be a nice guy. You know, it's raining. She can't get a hotel room. It's like, you know, you come in, you know, you sleep in the bed. I'll sleep on the couch. We'll sort this out in the morning. Um, he's just trying a bit hard, but he could just be a nice guy. On the other hand, it's Bill Skarsgård. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he could be a lunatic. And the movie does such a great job of teasing that out and playing that for as long as it can. Mm. Campbell is absolutely terrific in the main role. Justin Long turns up a ways in, and he is excellent as well. It's incredibly tense and creepy. It's brilliantly filmed by this guy, uh, Zach Kreger. He's one of those Jordan Peele types in that he's come out of sketch comedy, and this is his first like horror movie. And he just has a fantastic eye for horror, like the way he uses darkness, the way that he composes his shots. It's really well done. It's the kind of movie that I don't know how likely it is for it to be spoiled for you, but you don't want it to be spoiled for you. You want to go in as cold as possible because the movie has actually 
even if you've seen the trailer for it, because I saw the trailer before I saw it, but it has done a remarkable job of telling you what that movie is about without telling you what the movie is actually about, if that makes sense. And there is there is something deeper underlying it as well. There is a commentary underlying it that would be a spoiler for me to tell you what it is, but, like, um, there's a meteor foundation beneath the the horror and the aesthetic of it as well. I strongly recommend it. Uh, lastly, for the movies I saw in cinemas, I saw The Woman King. It is a historical epic directed by Gina Prince-Bytherwood. Uh, it's set in 1823 in a West African kingdom named Dahomey, where they have this, like, battalion of elite female warriors that help defend the kingdom. And all of that is real. That's a real thing from history. The rest of what I'm about to say is fictional. It follows General Naniska, played by Viola Davis. There's this whole thing that's going on with, um, you know, the slave trade and the Atlantic Passage and all of that going on with um, Africa at the time, Europeans coming to to get African peoples and sell them as slaves uh, internationally, and the way that the kingdoms of Africa have sort of bought into that, that they've been sort of collecting their enemies and selling them as, as slaves. And all of this is creating friction between the homie and the neighbouring kingdom and European slavers themselves and, you know, sort of moral frictions within the homie. There's a new king. And then this all sort of just leads to conflict. And it's seen through the eyes of a headstrong new recruit named Nawi, played by Thuso Mumbedu. This is not really my thing. I'm very hit or miss on historical epics. Uh, sometimes they really engage me. A lot of times they don't. What I will say is that it's just, it's, it has a great sense of time and place. The production design, the costume design, it really is excellent. The story is decent. There's not much unexpected in it. There's not a lot of... It's, it's not particularly deep and it doesn't get into the characters as much as I would like. There's some good stuff with Naniska and Nawi that I, I wish that they had spent a little more time on stuff like that rather than some of the more bigger, more historical epic stuff that it, it goes into. There's this whole romance with Nawi and this guy that she meets who, whose mother was from Dahomey but whose father was a white man and he's been raised in Europe and he's you know, come back over to see where his mother grew up. It doesn't work, doesn't land, you, you don't really buy it. But Viola Davis is excellent and Mimbedo is absolutely fantastic. She should break out big from this. She was also in uh, that Amazon miniseries from, I think, last year, The Underground Railroad. Might have been earlier this year. But it's a, it's a it's got a fantastic Terence Blanchard score as well. It has really good moments, but it just it didn't hold my attention the whole way through. It was it's impeccably made though. At home, I also watched Adventureland, which is a coming of age dramedy directed by Greg Matola. It's set in nineteen eighty seven. This guy named James, played by Jesse Eisenberg, has just graduated college. He has no money, and so he gets a summer job at a theme park called Adventureland, and he falls for his troubled coworker M, played by Kristen Stewart. This is nothing new, but it's very, very sweet. It's charming. It's dryly witty. It's not a laugh-out-loud kind of thing. It's more subdued. It's more amusing. It's more about its characters. And it's a very much a hangout movie, you know, hanging out with its characters, watching them interact with each other and, and all that stuff. Great chemistry between the entire cast. You can really tell that they've worked through a lot of this 
material together and it feels very natural as a result. Eisenberg and Stewart are both excellent as the leads. They have great chemistry together. It's actually worse off the broader it tries to get in terms of the humour. They bring in Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig as sort of like the eccentric owners of the theme park and it's like Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig playing Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig and it's like, okay, you sort of just detach totally from this sort of like... So they lost their confidence. Well, well yeah, it's, it's just a different thing entirely from this faux emo 80s-ness that's going on over here. Instead, we've got like 2000s SNL going on in the corner. But it has, you know, your your standard coming-of-age themes about finding purpose and self-fulfillment. There is some interesting stuff about the characters, both James and M, sort of being mirrored by their parents. That sort of the problems they are dealing with, their parents are an example of those problems having gone to their their logical and unfortunate endpoint. There's some interesting stuff there. There's this whole thread with Ryan Reynolds that I didn't like. I didn't think we, we needed it. I didn't think we needed him. It's a good performance from Reynolds, though. It's very much against type from what he normally does. He's much more subdued and quiet than he normally is in a, in a really interesting way. But it's it's an entertaining movie. It's available in Australia on Stan if anyone's interested. I saw State of Play. It is a thriller directed by Kevin MacDonald, and it's based on the BBC miniseries of the same name, created by... Paul Abbott, and in it, the mistress of a congressman named Stephen Collins, played by Ben Affleck, turns up dead. And uh, some journalists start to investigate this, including his old college friend, Cal McCaffrey, played by Russell Crowe. It turns out he's the only guy in Congress really blocking a private military contractor from getting a really good sort of government contract. And he, as well as a sort of newbie journalist for the paper, played by Rachel McAdams, start piecing together what appears to be a conspiracy. This is dense. It's really well done. It's the whole idea of the intersection of politics and big business and the media and the way that those industries sort of feed off of each other and um, are, are, are both closely connected but also in complete opposition to each other. Um, it's a great sort of inside baseball story about the crossover of those three spheres. Uh, And it's also a gumshoe journalism story. It's an old-fashioned style of thriller. It's very 70s. It's very All the Presence Men, very Three Days of the Condor, very The Parallax View, that kind of stuff. An excellent cast. Uh, I mentioned Affleck and Crow, who are both good. Rachel McAdams is excellent as always, but you get Helen Mirren, Robin Wright, Jeff Daniels in supporting roles, all of them very strong. And they nail... That um, that dramatic dialogue and showdowns in rooms and people yelling at each other that I always enjoy in uh, in political related things or business related things. I'm 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 a fan of people yelling at each other in boardrooms in movies. <laughs> but uh, it's stylishly shot as well. It's just missing a little bit of propulsion. I'm not sure exactly what it is. It's like there's just not enough seasoning to it. It just needed something. It just needed a little bit more energy. But it's available for streaming in Australia on Netflix if anyone's interested. I next saw The Burrowers. It is a direct-to-video horror western directed by J.T. Petty. And it is set in the Old West where a family uh, of white settlers has been attacked, some of them killed, most of them taken. And the local townspeople suspect that Native Americans have done it. And so they put together a posse 
to go out and find them and hopefully rescue these people. What they don't know is that it's not Native Americans. It is actually subterranean monsters that live in like a series of tunnels beneath the Old West. This is a great premise that it doesn't quite know what to do with in the end. It's very genre-bending, and I I love that. It it works, especially in the early goings, as it's sort of blending the tropes of westerns with the aesthetic and the the storytelling of horror stuff. It is a very modern western. It is, um, in terms of its commentary on the Old West, it spends a lot of time thinking about the racism there, the bigotry, the power structures, it is very much in the revisionist camp rather than the old classic sort of, you know, John Wayne wasn't the West great kind of things. It's not one of those. But it doesn't always handle those things. Like it, it's, you feel like you wish, and, and this goes for the monster element as well, you feel like you wish that they had a better point to lead up to at the end. You feel like it's, it's sort of in need of a finale that brings it all together, but instead it sort of reveals itself, whether it's through, you know, a lack of writing prowess or a lack of knowledge of really what to do for a finale. They sort of putter out at the end. An ensemble cast that, uh, that starts off pretty good. Clancy Brown is in it. William Mapether, who is a guy you might not know the name, but you would recognize the face. There's some good character development for them as well, but it stalls halfway through when things start to get real nasty and and we get distracted by some of the more overtly horror elements. You start to think, I kind of liked this when they were doing this sort of slow simmer in the background. Like that was more interesting to me. But there's some decent horror concepts. There's some quite grisly stuff in it. It's not very scary. But uh, they get some visual scale from the locations and, you know, these big fields and prairies and things that they're shooting on. It's a really interesting movie. An interesting movie, definitely, just for the just for the fact that it's blending the genres in that way. I do like horror westerns. Uh, I like them in the same way I like sci-fi horrors or something like that. Or, you know, I, I like it when they, when they put a, a genre into a setting that is so outside the norm. What about a walk-and-talk political thriller, but it has Lovecraftian elements? Yeah. I've always said, like, I want the Disney Plus West Wing-style Coruscant series for Star Wars. I want just, like... Apparently, Andor gets pretty close. Okay. That's what I've heard. Apparently, the script is fantastic of it. Lastly this week, I have watched Eden Log, which is a science fiction mystery directed by Frank Vastil. And it follows this amnesiac, played by Clovis Cornelac, who wakes up in a mysterious underground facility populated by muted creatures. Shit. This is basically a video game story. I mean, it's an amnesiac protagonist who sort of wakes up, doesn't know what's going on, but shit's popping off. There's a lot of, like, like right to the point where he, like, finds video recordings and audio logs and stuff and, like, environmental storytelling. Look, it just, it turns out it doesn't work when you try that kind of storytelling in a film instead of a video game. When the, when you don't have agency over the story itself, it starts to feel kind of cheap and like a cheat. It was shot in both English and French. And when I say shot, I mean the actors appear to have learned their English lines phonetically and then have been dubbed over and posed by other actors. I don't know why. I suppose to make it more marketable in the West or in English-speaking countries, rather. But the effect is awful. And I don't understand why, for the life of me, uh, I think it was Magnet Releasing 
put out the Blu-ray that I watched, they have made the English version the version on the Blu-ray. They include the French language version as a special feature, but it's in SD. It's in standard definition. And so I was not going to do that. It w- it's a big mistake. And it's, look, it's not very dialogue heavy anyway. It's trying for some atmosphere, I suppose. And again, that sort of environmental storytelling. But it is so slow. It's got this 17-minute opening, which is just him waking up and wandering around in dark corridors before literally anything interesting happens. It seems to be trying to make a statement and be profound, but it just ends up being confusing instead. The visuals I run hot and cold on. It's a great shot composition, very interesting stuff to look at in the frame, but it has such a grey colour filter on everything that it might as well be in black and white. It thinks it's being challenging and provocative, but it's just actually incredibly dull at the end of it. But anyways, that's me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? Uh, So we watched a couple of things this week. Uh, The first is yet another one of our entries into talking about American Horror Story. Bloody hell. One more jump into the breach, my friends. It seems as though in the time that we've been doing this podcast, you you seem to get increasingly sour every year on this. No, I'm not sour, it's just like... It's been going for a while, and it's surprising how long it's lasted, considering the varying quality of the different seasons. This is season 11, they're already renewed for season 12 and 13. Does Ryan Murphy just... what does he have on these people? It's one of the highest rated shows on the network, I think that's why it's still there. But like... How does he have enough time in the day for all the shit he's doing? Well, I think you overestimate the amount of involvement that Ryan Murphy actually has with the day-to-day running of these shows. It's an over- He has overview over several different projects that are all sort of running simultaneously. It- it's, you know, it's not like he's doing day-to-day shit, but it's still a lot to be responsible for. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what's he got at the moment? He's got American Horror Story, he's got American Crime Story... He's got nine, both of the 911 series. Allegedly, Ratchet still has a second season coming. And then he's done the Dharma miniseries, the Watcher miniseries. He's doing another series, another season of Feud. And then he's got those like American story spin-off stuff, American sports story and American love story that's supposedly coming. That's a lot. That's a lot. And apparently a um, a miniseries adaptation of a chorus line for Netflix as well. Oh, Jesus. Hey, man, you know you can sleep, right? Um, so this is American Horror Story Season 11, New York City. Uh, in 1981, New York, local reporter for the New York native, Gina Borelli, played by John Mentallo, press- presses his boyfriend, Detective Patrick Reed, played by Russell Tovey, for information regarding a string of serial murders of young gay men in the village, which is a, a borough of New York uh, that's very popular for the LGBTQ community, especially at the time, and the parks surrounding New York, where a lot of uh, young gay men go cruising. But there is something darker on the horizon. There is an overwhelming sense of dread pervading the streets of the Big Apple, specifically the LGBTQ community. Something is just on the horizon, I think we can all cotton on to what that is. This is set in 1981. Oh, so it's like an AIDS. Okay, AIDS is coming. Does it feel like it's going to be like a literal representation of that, or does it feel like AIDS is going to be sort of 
given a literalized stand-in in the sense of a monster it or something. It looks like it's going to be both. Okay. There's this figure called the Big Daddy, um, who's this leather-bound man in a mask and harness, who we can see, but apparently some other characters cannot. Um, there's also a serial killer going around murdering young gay men. There's a lot going on. The first episode is very... It throws you in the deep end, and that was very uncharacteristic for American Horror Story. They usually, like, they're fairly open with telling you exactly what's about to happen from the beginning in most seasons. They didn't They didn't do very much marketing for this ahead of time no, this time. No. They didn't reveal the, uh, the theme even until, like, two weeks before it premiered. Uh, John, what do you reckon? So the first episode throws you in, like Harley said, the, into the deep end. And it doesn't really feel like horror story. You know, it's got horrific elements. The strain and pressure that this community is under is horrific in its own right, but it's a real-world horror. It doesn't have that sort of feeling of American Horror Story yet. It feels like its own show, until we get to the second episode. Then it starts to really feel like, oh no, this is what they're going for where you see sort of the literalizations of certain things, where you see how s- symbolic certain aspects of the narrative are towards, you know, the dangers of cruising culture in the early 1980s and into the 90s, and the dangers that are faced by the community are being portrayed as these overwhelming supernatural and conspiratorial things. One of the really strong elements in this season is, like... The show has been queer since it started. I think that's been pretty obvious. Ryan Murphy never really moves too far away from queer themes and queer imagery in his work. This one is explicitly queer. This is about LGBT communities at the time and what they had to deal with. Because these people are getting murdered, their bodies are washing up headless, and the cops are like, well, how to put this? Cruising is dangerous, and basically the cops are ignoring it. They're justifying it as consequences for that behavior. Reagan's America, baby. That is one of the elements that's most horrific in the series. There's that systemic sort of ignorance and violence. There's even violence between members of the same community. There's people more prominent in the community, people who are wealthier in the community, taking advantage of people. Have you seen the HBO movie that Ryan Murphy made, The Normal Heart? No. It's 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 not a genre thing. It's a it's about the gay community during AIDS. I think it's an adaptation of a play. A lot of what you're talking about here reminds me of that very strongly. Like it is um it seems like material that he returns to a lot. They've picked this point in time very specifically because all of the lack of shits being given by, you know, the place in this will in the next couple years after this become the lack of shits given by the government and the medical community around AIDS and the dangers of that that it was seen as you know the queer plague that it wasn't affecting anyone else and you can see why that would be something that Ryan Murphy of all people would be really affected by and interested in being a gay man of that era like he was in his 20s in the 80s well absolutely and what this this doesn't feel like American Horror Story to me strictly because like American Horror Story is when I think American Horror Story I think of things like 
American Horror Story Asylum, I think American Horror Story Freak Show, I think about Hotel, and the psychosexual issues at play. Weird and wild. Weird and wild, like, and I always get a metrosexual vibe from the series. Even if the characters are not queer themselves, there's this idea about fashion uh, that is- Camp. It's campy. This is not campy, and I think that is incredibly deliberate. And while it is the most explicitly gay season, it's the least campy. And I think that's a very interesting vibe, because characters are campy. We do get camp characters, but the the energy of the series itself, the way it's shot, is not. It doesn't feel like Ryan Murphy, it feels like Clive Barker. We haven't gotten to the most horrific elements yet, but it feels as though the dread is the point. Mm. As opposed to the overwhelming, like, Haha, murder and blood and I'm gonna wear a long silk gown. This is the dread. That is the point. It is bizarrely played straight. Yeah, and I don't know exactly how I feel. The Grand Guignol is gone. Exactly. And it is deliberate. Of course it's deliberate. Yeah. But I still don't know exactly where I land yet. It's more intriguing than any other season has been because of the fact it is so straight-faced with what it's doing. It feels as though Ryan Murphy's like, we've had our fun. Now we're going to talk about something really important. We've had our fun for 10 seasons. And it makes me more intrigued than excited to continue. Like, how will this unfold? How will these separate plot lines... Because there's this whole bit with Billy Lord, who plays a scientist who has been investigating the deer around New York. Fire Island. Yeah, and the viruses that have sprung up there. So she's where we get a lot of the virus talk, um, and how viruses can just pop up out of the blue and change and shift and mutate. So I think that's going to become pretty relevant later on. Do you think that he could be, maybe not explicitly, but he could be working through some, like, COVID ideas by the end of the season as well? I think so. I mean, potentially. Like, it would be wrong to assume that that's not informed the process here, because that's informed every process ever since it started. If it's not explicitly about it, there are concessions made in production. Can you imagine American Horror Story COVID? We've been watching American Horror Story COVID for the last two and a half years every time we watch the news. Come on. <laughs> We've been seeing that in real time. It would be wrong to assume that that's not informed the process here. It is definitely relevant. I really like the cast. Uh, Joe Mantello, Russell Tovey, they're really strong. They've got good chemistry. They do have good chemistry, and they're not in a great place in their relationship, but the chemistry is still present. We also get a wonderful return from actors we get dennis o'hare back i always love seeing him on the show uh leslie grossman who popped up first i believe in cult and i'm glad she stuck around because she she had trouble finding a footing in that season but was really strong in the previous few but we get a returning zachary quinto and we haven't had him since asylum i've missed him he's fantastic i mean he was in Horror stories for an episode. But this is his first time back as a main character. Yeah, back as a character with a lot, like a lot of substance and a lot of presence. What's most striking to me is there's very little reliance on previous cast here. Y- you do get those like returning members like Zachary Quinto, Billy Lord, but a lot of more 
specific picks here rather than the broad casting that they do with their previous actors. This is the first season Evan Peters is sitting out, isn't it? Well, yep, so far. I don't know further in, um, but he was busy with another Ryan Murphy project. Paulson already skipped 1994. Yes. And Paulson's not back here either. Um, To be fair, she deserves to stretch her legs. (laughs) She was carrying some of those other seasons. She carried Apocalypse on her back. Yeah. But I am very interested to see where this goes. We started the series last week. We wanted to give it a chance. We wanted to watch two episodes at the very least. Like, benefit of the doubt. Because the first episode didn't strike me, the second one has intrigued me. In Australia, you can find American Horror Story Season 11 New York on Binge. You can find the rest on Disney+. Plus. We also watched a horror anthology film, sort of? Speaking of Clive Barker. <laughs> Speaking of Clive Barker, we watched Books of Blood. It follows two criminals who are on the hunt for a $1 million book that they were hinted towards when trying to steal from a library owner. And they travel to search for this book of blood, so to speak. And through that, we get told three different stories, Jenna, Miles, and Bennett. And in those stories, we have everything from ghostly body horror, normal body horror, and the horror of simply hearing people chew loudly. Oh, this must be the most terrifying movie you've ever seen, Harley. I feel so seen by this movie, I swear to God. I don't know if we've ever said it on the podcast, but Harley has like a a visceral reaction to the to mouth sounds in general, but chewing especially. It's misophonia. Uh so anything like I have it Lawson too. said. Mouth noises. Specifically chewing. Clicking, lip noises. And it's not like a oh that's annoying. It's like a physical Yeah, it's nails on a chalkboard kind of thing. Yeah, like, that's the best way I can sort of, like, describe it. It's less psychological, it's very physiological, like, I feel it in my body. Yeah. But this is directed by Ranen Braga, and good lord, he should do horror more often, because there are some fantastic uses of visual style here, and a really interesting cast. I will let Harley say what he wants to say about this movie, because I have a bit to say after he's done. Alright, I'm a big fan of Clive Barker. I've recently started really getting into his work. When I can get around to it on Audible, I'm going to be going through the Books of Blood, which are his short story compilations. I'm a big fan of Hellraiser, I'm a big fan of basically his whole vibe as an artist. It's like he's got this like other side of himself that he like keeps locked up in a in a dungeon that he like Locked up, gagged, and leather bound in a box. And, like, he comes down to his own dungeon and gets a bit of himself and, like, whips it a bit to get some stories out. And it all comes down to the fact that Clive Barker is one of those storytellers obsessed with story. He's one of those storytellers who's very much about experiencing things, experiencing stories. And that's the whole idea behind the title, Books of Blood. Those are people. Everyone is a book of blood. Everybody is a book of blood. When you open them, they are red. And Clive Barker is obsessed with that, which works for this project incredibly well. It's adapting two 
of the Books of Blood stories. One of them is, like, kind of the wraparound over the character of Bennett. The wraparound and the third story, it's... It, kind of. But the big one, like, the titular story, Book of Blood, is here. And it's fantastic. I loved it. Movie has a clean, crisp style, which I do have to say does sort of characterize what Hulu has been doing in the horror space recently. There's a clarity of vision here that I really appreciate. And there's one moment, John knows it, that I think is one of like the most striking pieces of imagery I've ever seen in a horror movie. Other than that, the use of sound here was really good, even though I couldn't stand it. But that was the point. It was the it was to emphasize how I feel pretty much every day to the members <laughs> of the audience who don't. So if everyone else was being annoyed by the focus on noise in those certain sequences, just imagine what hell it was for me. I was seen and I didn't like that, but I also appreciated that. It would have felt wrong to mute it, like we would have missed the point. Yeah, it it's incredibly good, a lot of strong performances, but like, I want to see them do another one. Yeah. Because there are so many books of blood that they can do stories on. Like, obviously we've already got stuff like Midnight Meat Train already covered. And, and we've already got The Forbidden, which turned into Candyman, but there are so many Clive Barker... Even just short stories and stuff that could be done in a Books of Blood sequel. I loved this. I thought this was fantastic. I thought this was a great use of Barker's interests and his desires, bizarrely enough. You've got Rit Robertson, Frida Foshen, Anna Friel, and Rafi Gavron as the best performances here. Rafi Gavron, for the people who understand what the... Book of Blood is, that story. He plays Simon. The style of this was fantastic. This one particular moment, the creation of the titular Book of Blood, is one of the most incredible pieces of horror filmmaking I've seen from a, you know, one of these originals that hasn't gone to theaters that is just, you know, put out on a streaming service. I've very rarely seen a Clive Barker moment exemplified when it's not Clive Barker's eye directing it himself. Exactly. It is visceral and epic in scope. In the original Books of Blood novel, it is known as the Highway of the Dead. Mm. This place in this sort of realm, almost. Realm seems like even too much of a tangible, understandable word. This, or like, layer underneath existence of where spirits and the dead exist, and They've all got these pinprick glowing eyes and they're all pale and it's just everything I like about the visuals of horror. Like, mm. almost to a T meant to make me love it. The ending is also fantastic. The way that all of these stories come together is brilliant and the way that it plays with time and space is also really cool. I thought this was fantastically done. You can find this on Disney Plus in in Australia. I don't know where you could find it otherwise. It's Hulu. Hulu. Uh, we've got it under the Stars banner here in Australia, so your mileage may vary on that. But uh, Lawson has told us that he has a pith take to do today. Pith take. 
Yes, for the uninitiated piss takers where we share our pissy thoughts on something that is not a TV show or a movie, I have a non-fiction book to talk today, something that I've been picking at for a little while now. Um, it is The Complete Jack the Ripper by Donald Rumblow. You've been on a real serial killer kick with your books. Well, you know, I'm, I, and you know, I'm reading another one right now as well. I've, I, what it was is I read The Midnight Assassin, and big part of that was like there was the suggestion that some people have made, probably not a very good one. The book was the first to realize that that The Midnight Assassin might have been Jack the Ripper. That a little mm. while after The Midnight Assassin killing stopped, the Whitechapel murders started, uh, and indeed the one I'm reading now is also a killer that has been um theorized not taken very seriously but theorized to also be jack the ripper but i will talk about that at some future date but but anyways this is sort of like why i'm on this kick is i'm sort of following a few few different threads from the midnight assassin book but uh the complete jack the ripper is what it says on the tin it's an overview of the jack the ripper case obviously people probably know all of this but it was um a series of murders in, in Whitechapel, London in 1888. Five murders of sex workers by a serial killer called Jack the Ripper who was never caught. I was looking coming off of, of the Midnight Assassin, and of course knowing how Byzantine and how many different, you know, popular suspects there are for Jack the Ripper, I just wanted an overview. Fair enough. I didn't want one of those. I've solved it, everyone. This is the guy who Jack the Ripper was, definitely. Those are always the most annoying because... They tend to just, like, forget everything that doesn't support their hypothesis. Like, you've done something really smart, which is just, you just want all the facts laid out in front of you. Yeah, and that's, that, I stand by that. I shouldn't have picked this particular book, though, because the information is solid, but Rumblow is such a dry writer. Um, he put me to sleep multiple times. I literally had to put down the Kindle and go to sleep because it was, I was nodding off. <laughs> There's just a little too much editorialising as well. I mean, he clearly knows his stuff, but he jumps all over the place and sometimes he assumes knowledge, the groundwork for which hasn't been laid. Uh, he will return to mention people that he only mentioned briefly, like 200 pages ago, and expect us to remember everything about them, what's going on. It's written from the perspective of an expert for experts. Yeah. Well, no, he's writing for the general public, right. but he hasn't adjusted well, like, his style. Yeah, he hasn't yeah. adjusted his voice. It's got decent coverage of each murder, decent coverage of the main suspects, uh, even if the, the main suspects... He, he goes on this whole thing where he, he literally like spends 100 pages, you know, the, the name of the suspect and then their own story, and then the name of the suspect and then their own story. That's some of the worst in terms of, like, referring to things that he hasn't established yet, referring to assumed knowledge. But the best bits really are some stuff that he does at the end. He, he does some really long sections on sort of the cultural legacy of Jack the Ripper, why he has made such an impact, you know, his impact in literature and film and television and stuff like that. And also a list of probably not copycat murders. Copycat's probably too strong a term, but like people who sort of took the Ripper sobriquet or that the media drew a connection to like the Yorkshire Ripper or the Dusseldorf Ripper. Yeah where there was a similar enough relationship that the resemblance to Jack the Ripper became part of the story. And he goes through some of those as well. And these read a lot better as well. They actually seem to be from an updated edition. This is a later edition of the book that I'm reading. It is um was originally published in, I think, the 70s. And there's been some updates sometime in the 2010s. Like a revised edition. Yeah. But yeah, you can also tell 
kind of when there's been a switch over from something in the 70s to something that was added in the 2010s edition because of the the shift in language to how he describes the victims of Jack the Ripper. Like there's a very sort of 70s approach to the description of sex workers and and that sort of stuff that very much softens uh whenever yeah. you switch yeah. over into some of the more recent things. But um there's got to be more engaging ones than this if you're looking for an overview. I can't really recommend it. So that's what we've seen within the week. Now we will play for you the trailer to Knowing. You and me together forever. 50 years ago, the students of William Dawes Elementary imagined what the future might hold. Today, we unveiled their legacy. It's a list of dates. Every major global disaster for the last 50 years in perfect sequence. The next number on the chain predicts that tomorrow, 81 people are going to die in some kind of tragedy. Get off the train. Why? What's wrong? Just take the baby and get off the train. Estimates put the presumed dead at 81. The prediction came true. It's not coincidence. Don't let him watch the news. Why won't you tell me what's going on? They were here. Who? The Whisperer people. The numbers are a warning. They're a warning to everyone. This is not a test. This is an emergency broadcast transmission. Are we gonna die? I will never let that happen, Caleb. Do you hear me? Never. That was the trailer for Knowing. It is a science fiction thriller directed by Alex Proyas, and it follows John Kessler, played by Nicolas Cage, a professor of astrophysics at MIT, who has recently become a widower. He and his young son, Caleb, played by Chandler Canterbury, have been struggling in the aftermath, and there's a distance that has developed between them. John tries his best, but he's kind of checked out. He barely makes it to Caleb's school in time for the ceremony to unearth a time capsule buried for 50 years. Back in 1959, the kids at the school drew pictures which were sealed in envelopes and placed into the capsule for distribution when it was opened. Everyone gets one, including Caleb, who discovers that his envelope does not contain a picture, but instead a long string of seemingly meaningless numbers scrawled messily on a page. While up late one night, John notices something about the numbers. Hidden within them include the dates of all the major tragedies that have happened over the last half century. The numbers beside them, he realises after a little googling, are the death counts for those events. Understandably freaked, John does some investigating. He finds out that the kid who drew these numbers was a troubled girl named Lucinda, played by Laura Robinson, now dead. Her own daughter is still alive, though. Her name is Diana, she's played by Rose Byrne, and John decides to approach her in the creepiest way possible to obtain her help. 
He desperately needs it because ever since the Kesslers came into possession of that envelope, they have been watched by strangers who have an unsettling interest in Caleb. Plus, there's a few dates at the bottom of the page that John finds especially troubling for one notable reason. They haven't happened yet. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we think of knowing. Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. Good lord, this movie goes places. I mean, holy shit. You don't expect to see as many people get absolutely cleaned up by natural disasters. No, not just natural disasters, but just disasters as you do in this. And with such clarity as well. It's it's wild. And it is held together by some bizarrely held together by really strange performances by Cage and particularly Rose Byrne, who is uncharacteristically bad here. All right, Harley, you ready? Three, two, one, go. I still don't know how I feel. I quite like movies like this. You would know that I've really liked some of the M. Night Shyamalan stuff. This feels like a Shyamalan kind of plot, to me at least. But it's directed by the guy who gave us iRobot. And that's a weird mix, and it makes me feel weird. My jaw was on the floor in certain scenes. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. And... I don't know, I had a very interesting time with it. I'm still not sure where I land. You can practically see the movie drifting away from the <laughs> filmmakers. You can see them lose their grip <laughs> in real time. It It's a great idea, and it has a lot of really interesting stuff in it. I think visually it's well made. The set pieces they put together are really excellent. But like I said, I mean, they, they kind of just face plant and lose their grip on the whole story and it just floats away right in front of their eyes. It's incredible. Okay, so I have a very simple question to ask you before we get into the, you know, how it came to be and everything. Did you like it? Yes, I, I, I yes, I liked it. I enjoyed it. I was entertained watching it. I was, like, entertained, entertained in the way I was like, oh, holy shit, what's going on? <laughs> but... Uh, entertained nonetheless. I had a good time. There's very, very little on knowing in the production history this week. Virtually nothing. So we're going to go through this real quick. It began with a pitch from author Ryan Douglas Pearson in 2001. He approached producers Todd Black and Jason Blumenthal. And his pitch basically was the time capsule with the prophecies, with the dates of, with the number of the dead, and that the last one would be a date that had not yet happened with ee for everyone else and they they bought that from the pitch they they liked that and so they took it to columbia pictures where it was developed for a while a few different directors were attached during this period rod lurie who directed the contender which we did an episode on and richard kelly who directed donnie darko were both attached to direct this movie at different points but sooner or later Columbia Pictures put it into turnaround. It was eventually picked up by a production studio called Escape Artists, who decided to make it with Summit Entertainment distributing it. Alex Preuss was hired as the director, and he was inspired by The Exorcist in the sense that he wanted to do the elevated subject matter with a grounded style, a grounded handling. Uh, and we can debate how successful he was. <laughs> it's like... I don't think so. <laughs> to have your sort of high watermark be the exorcist uh, as to the vibe that you want to get across in terms of your filmmaking, it's like, 
Mate. Mate. Proyas is Australian. He likes to shoot in Australia, and so he got them to shoot in Melbourne. So this whole movie is shot in and around Melbourne. It is also, just as a footnote, the film debut of Liam Hemsworth, uh, who you probably, I see by your expressions, you did not catch. He is the guy that Cage throws the football to in the class at the Shit, beginning. Shit, it is. I, I did not catch that. How about that? Well, Liam Hemsworth is not the least memorable Hemsworth brother, but he also isn't the most memorable Hemsworth brother. He's sort of just there. He's there. Look, he's very comfortable. That Hunger Games money, I'm sure, will keep him in, in food and board for as long as he wants. This is Jean from the future. Apparently, it's going to be that Witcher money, too. The day after we recorded this... We were informed that he was going to be replacing Henry Cavill as Geralt in The Witcher Netflix series, going from the end of the third season onward. So, hey, timing. Literally, that's it. I've got nothing else. There's <laughs> no one's really you know, chopping at the bit to do like the oral history of knowing or anything like that or, or retrospective interviews or anything. No one cares. But the movie came out on the 20th of March 2009 in the United States. Its widest release there was in 3,337 theatres and it was number one at the box office against I Love You Man and Duplicity. And it it made more money than you'd probably expect. It made $183 million worldwide on a $50 million budget. This movie was a success. It is the 35th highest grossing movie of 2009. It is the 942nd highest grossing movie of all time, as of the time of this recording. And it only made $2 million less than Watchmen, which we talked about last but, week. You know, which crack the tops. It cracks the top thousand. Yeah, I didn't think it would crack the top thousand. That's pretty good for this. Considering, truly, how many movies there are. That's pretty good. Well, I suppose it, it goes to show you how many movies have... How few movies, rather, have made over $175 million. Yeah, and it also goes to show how many different movies this movie is. I mean, this was... Yeah, continue. <laughs> The film came out a week later on the 26th of March in Australia. Its widest release here was in 204 theatres. It was number one against The Uninvited and Bottle Shock. The film received mostly negative reviews, however. It has a 34% Rotten Tomatoes rating, and the critics' consensus there reads, Knowing has some interesting ideas and a couple good scenes, but it's weighted down by its absurd plot and over-seriousness. The... Film didn't exactly light up the award circuit. In fact, it only got one notable <laughs> nomination for our purposes. It received a single nomination at the Saturn Awards for Best Science Fiction Film. I wasn't even expecting that. It did yeah. not win. Okay, Saturn Award nominations. I Saturn. need to know what it was up against. Yeah, because that must be, it must have been a pretty, 2009 must have been a pretty dull year for... <laughs> And Avatar fiction. hadn't come out yet, so... Yeah. No, it had. It came out oh. at the end of 2009. So it would have been part of this award ceremony. Here we go. Best science fiction film, Avatar 1. Knowing was nominated alongside The Book of Eli, Moon, Star Trek, X-Men Origins Wolverine, and Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. 2009. Yeah. 2009, letting the team down. Uh, Book of Eli, I, I think, is interesting. But sci-fi? It's post-apocalyptic. Look... Yeah. They're loose with yeah. these terms. Yeah. The Time Traveler's Wife is listed as a fantasy film and the best fantasy film things here. So is The Lovely Bones. 
Oh no! No, don't do that! The Twilight Saga New Moon is listed as best horror or thriller film. Because <laughs> they're like, it has vampires, put it in there! It has murders! Someone went up to the person, and this was at like 3am. They've run out of coffee, it's like, fuck it, whatever. Put it on. Best action or adventure film, and Glorious Bastards wins, which, okay. Perhaps. And there are some other ones that make sense in here. Law Abiding Citizen, 2012, Sherlock Holmes, The Hurt Locker, okay. The Messenger is nominated. The Messenger is not an action movie. It is a drama about Ben Foster and Woody Harrelson as two of those members of the military whose job it is to go and knock on people's doors and tell them that their children have died in war. It's not an action movie. It's really? a drama. Jesus. It's a, de- a depressing war drama <laughs> that the Saturn Awards nominated for Best Action or Adventure Film. <laughs> Let's just say the award ceremony is not being put on by Mensa. Yeah. Oh, I think that's a little mean. Also, also this is bizarre. Also nominated was like Brothers, was Brothers, which is that, that movie where... Okay, ostensibly it has <laughs> an action scene? Toby Maguire plays a presumed dead prisoner in the war in Afghanistan who is released from that captivity and comes back and finds out that in the aftermath that, um... His brother Jake Gyllenhaal has had sex with his wife. Yeah. That's got to be like a Hurt Locker halo effect. Like, the Hurt Locker was such a thing, it won Best Picture at the Oscars, and that's got to be, like, I can't think of any Everything other Everything in its periphery yeah. just sort of managed to become... <laughs> More. <laughs> I can't get over the messenger being nominated for best actual adventure film. Um, the only way that I could see something like the messenger becoming an action film is if it was directed by Edgar Wright. If like the turning of the doorknob was a very quick push in with a musical sting. Anyways, knowing so I, you guys have seen this before. Yes, it was a while ago, over a decade ago. You vaguely remember the general like skeleton of it the broad structure yeah. the ge- the yeah. direction yeah as i was watching it i was like i know that nicholas cage screams at a man on fire i i know that he like hits a tree with a baseball yeah. you're, bat you re- you're overstating this you mentioned this last week when i the way that you, you say scream at a man on fire you make it sound like he does his wicker man routine at one of those guys as <laughs> At the plain side, when really he doesn't. He, he just yells. yells an alarm. It's it's not the, no, the bonkers. He yells, hey, and we'll, I'll put a clip in. He yells, hey, as, in, as if to catch that guy's attention. Hey! Hey! Well, yeah, he wants him to stop so he can put him out. Sure, but, but it feels like he's saying, hey, stop. I've got some questions to ask you. As if the guy fully in flames is going to stop and be like, uh, yes, but what would you like to know about the plane crash I was just in? I knew the basic premise of this movie. I knew the prediction thing. I didn't know anything else. <laughs> I knew the beginning and the end of this movie. Right. I I knew the beginning, not the end. I knew the whole time capsule thing. I cannot imagine what your experience was like. So... And it, uh, that might be why I had such fun with it, because we get to the point where, like, okay, I'm get, I'm vibing with this. It's got some atmosphere. I mean, I'm not really digging the performances, but we're, we're, we're getting some good stuff here. There's the creepy guy standing watching the house. All right, let's see where this goes. And then the fucking plane comes, like, flying out of the air and, like, smashes into that highway. And it's not even, like, 
When he turns around, he's not even looking in the direction of the plane. The plane comes out from a completely different direction. It's shot so well that I love the way that that sequence is put together. But, you know, we can we can get to this later. That was the moment where I was like, oh, okay, so, oh, this is what this movie is. Oh, and then it just kept getting more of that. Yeah. And you get to, like, the train thing. I'm like, okay, cool. And then after that, probably probably from the moment, really the train part is the last part where I'm like, okay, this this I might actually really like this movie. And then after that is when it just floats away those those chips in the in the space shuttle in that Simpsons episode where Homer goes to space and like <laughs> becomes this catastrophe where it goes into all the wire work and things get really bad. That's the last moment that I'm, and and by the end I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> Like, but but that was a really interesting experience for me, and I mean, part of where we are in the list, there are more there are more movies per year than there were when we started out in the nineties. There are more movies per year, but at the same time, we're still at a at a point where most of them are heavy hitters. Most of them are ones that have a cultural impact that people yeah. have have really heard of. By the time we get to like twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen, because that was when I'd industrialized this. That was when I was like a factory line where I, I will watch all the trailers, I will write down a list, I will I had this whole thing. If you want to hear the details of this, you can go back and listen to our episode on that. That's where all of a sudden you get to hundred and fifty to two hundred movies per year. And so that's where it's gonna be like weird shit. And I'm looking <laughs> forward to a lot more experiences like this. And I hope to do a lot more episodes on movies that are Maybe not, maybe hopefully better than this movie, but like have the same kind of out of nowhere quality that I experienced mm. here. Because there are some movies I'm, I look at on the list from like 2016, 2017, where I'm just like, I don't even remember what that's about. I went <laughs> through the process. I don't remember what it's about. You know? <laughs> what? There's a movie called Submerged. There's a movie called Kill Command. I don't know what these movies are. No one knows what these movies are. But somewhere in the distant <laughs> past, I decided that it might be worth watching. So I look forward to that. But I. They're just little gifts from yeah. past you to future you. But that was a fun experience because it, 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 it gave me a bit of an indication of what it must have been like in, in the theatre to see this the first time, I think, when it came out. And this is kind of that weird limbo area of Nicolas Cage's career when mm. he gone off-road. He wasn't on the straight and narrow anymore. He wasn't doing respectable fare, but he also hadn't gone completely insane yet in terms of Mm. the movies he was making. He had not yet gone to... Left Behind. Left Behind, yes. That's a good example. Or what was that? I think it was Jiu-Jitsu, where he played like a ninja. That was a couple of years ago. But there was still like a, oh, Nicolas Cage. Yeah, this is a movie that will be released in over 3,000 theatres and can be number one at the box office. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think part of the reason why this movie did make so much money is not because people, you know, came out of it and were like, dude, you have to see this movie. It was more, oh, that's an interesting premise to go see a movie about at, like, on a Friday evening. It's got Nicolas Cage and explosions. That se- seems like a fun idea. What these people didn't realize is they were s- sitting down to watch The Bastard Child of Darren Aronofsky and Roland Emmerich. It makes so much sense, doesn't it, that Richard Kelly was attached to direct this movie Oh, at some absolutely. Point. Yeah. You could absolutely see how a producer might look at that 
premise, that pitch, and be like, let's get the Johnny Darko guy to do it. Yeah, let's absolutely. get Mr. Determinism to direct this movie. And it also, like, Alex Proyas is a director that burned all of his respectability basically as quickly as he could. Mm. You could also see how you might look at that script and say, yeah, let's get the guy that directed Dark City. Because mm-hmm. Alex Proyas, he starts, I, I don't know if Dark City was his first movie, I think it was, but it's this like cult classic, Roland, um, Roger Ebert calls it one of his favourite movies ever, and I mean, he starts off in music videos doing stuff for Sting and all of this. Okay, it wasn't his first movie, his first movie, God Help Him was The Crow, which has got to be an awful start to your career. Mm-hmm. Mm. Not on qualitative terms, just on the experience had. Well, yes. Yeah. When someone dies on your set, that's got to be, yeah. But he goes on from that to Dark City. He makes something that no one remembers called Garage Days, which is an Australian film. Then I, Robot. And then after that, he has made only two movies after Ro- after I Robot. Knowing is one of them. The other is Gods of Egypt. Oh. I don't know what has happened to Alex Proyas. Whether he just can't get the work anymore, or because it's not like it's not like these movies were unsuccessful. I think Gods of Egypt was, but everything up to that made money. You know, knowing made a profit. I Robot was a good movie that made a profit and had Will Smith in it, and I. Maybe he just doesn't want to direct. I don't know, but um, he's directed a bunch of short films, but nothing big. Yeah, part of me wonders watching this movie if this was made by a director that had a more distinct vision or a greater grip on his material than I think Alex Proyas does. Alex Proyas, who every movie I've seen of his, I have liked, even Gods yeah. of Egypt. It's not a good movie, but I enjoyed myself. It's decent sword and, sa- sword and sandal stuff. But if you had, I don't know, a Christopher Nolan version of this movie or or someone else along those lines, someone who could do a really taut sci-fi thriller with that, I think that the premise here is a good one. Oh, yeah, the premise is incredibly strong. It is just that the movie itself gets away from them. Yeah, I would tend to agree. I don't think it's a bad Nicolas Cage. He does fine. He does fine. It's not going to be on his reel. Um, it's not going to be the clip in his In Memoriam at the Oscars. It's not going to be the clip in the craziest Nicolas Cage performances. The clip of his In Memoriam in the Oscars really should be the Not the Bees from The Wicker Man. Like, that is the <laughs> premiere <laughs> Nicolas Cage No, uh, I, w- I want it to be the, It's Klein at the door! Oh, Wicker Man, Wicker Man, Wicker Man. What a fantastic film. Full of truly so much batshit insane, Nicolas Cage. From something as deadpan and bizarre as, what's in the bag? Shark or something? All the way to him punching a woman while wearing a bear suit. All the way to, killing me won't bring back your goddamn honey. Sometimes I think it would be fun if you went into like Wikipedia, IMDb and changed the photo to just a really unfortunate still from... (laughs) From a movie, I like Nicolas yeah. Cage in a bear suit. Um, but yeah, it's it's a pretty muted it's performance. It's a fine from Cage performance. Here. The person doing the Nicolas Cage performance in this movie is Rose Byrne. Oh yeah, I'm just looking at also the writers of this, just so we know who we're dealing with. So Ryan Douglas Pearson did the original thing, and he's credited for the screenplay and for the story. But he's mostly a novelist by trade. This is his only screenwriting credit. Right. 
But the other two people who were brought in to clean it up are Juliet Snowden and Styles White, who, from what I can see on their filmographies, seem to be a team and also don't have a great resume. Their only other high-profile movie here is the first Ouija movie. Not the, not the second good one, directed and written by Mike Flanagan, the first one that everyone was like, they made. why are they making a sequel to that? The first one that everyone is forced to remember to get to the second. And other than that... <laughs> Other than that, they did a movie in 2012 called The Possession. Of course they did. Their only credit before knowing was Boogeyman, which has a 4.1 rating on IMDb. Although, to be fair to them, Boogeyman apparently was successful enough to merit two direct-to-video sequels. Mm. But, like... Successful enough to warrant direct-to-video sequels. Anything can get that. The concept is the strongest thing. Cage is doing an uncast uncharacteristically muted performance and Rose Byrne is just plain bad here. I'm going to push back on that. I think that Byrne is bad once she finds out that the world is ending. Yeah. I feel like everything everything up to that point, she's solid. It wasn't intentional, but the biggest laugh I got in this movie is when she almost hits that car on the road as she and she's driving the kids to the caves and then Nicholas Cage's son is like, where's dad? I want my dad. And she's just like... It's not good, which is so annoying because I've seen her do a lot better. Yeah, she's a good actress. She was always a good actress. She was on damages at the time this movie was made. She's fantastic in that. Not married for Emmys. Yeah, but it's like, hmm. what the hell happened here? I'm not going to blame the actors for no. too much here. Proyas isn't great with, like, character direction. No, and also, like, look, the, the problems that we're talking about here if, with the acting are really surround the third act, basically. Yeah. Everything is serviceable, dry, and unimpressive, but serviceable up until the third act. And the third act is where the movie loses its mind, and I would argue the material becomes kind of unworkable. Rose Byrne isn't exactly given great no. stuff no, to work with. She, she is meant to be... A shrieking mad person by the end of the movie, anyway. The character decisions that, that her character makes are absurd and inexplicable. But it's the end of the world, so... Yeah, it's it's not I do correct. love that reveal, though, of the... They pulled the bed up, and it just scrawled all over it as hmm. everyone else. Hmm. Well, we have jumped to the end really quickly, and I understand why, because it's insane. And that's sort of the thing that you remember from the movie, but we should... At least pay lip service to the first and second thirds, because I think that there are actually three distinct three, three distinct gears that this movie operates yes, in. Yeah. We spend the first third of the movie operating in this sort of... I would argue the first third is the most successful third because it's dark, it's atmospheric. It's tense. It's tense. You sort of... It, it really is an interesting mystery, a science fiction mystery. Second third, also very effective. Not as effective as the first, because we start to get some of the weirdness coming in, the odd dialogue, the performances start to slide. But you get those set pieces, those that yeah. scene with the plane, that scene with the train. And then the third act is when it goes nuts. Yeah. But that first sequence, that first opening third, is, I think, really solid. Yeah. I, I like... A lot of the touches here. I like how spooky Lucinda is. Played by the same played by the same young actress who plays Rosemont's yeah. daughter later on in the movie. I, I like that moment where and it's a moment that sort of hit me. Not not that I started 
weeping hysterically, but it was a, an emotional moment where he goes to see his son when his son is in bed, and he looks through the crack in the door, and on the screen, because his son is watching a home video of his mom, he sees that, and she is doing the shh, don't make a noise, finger to her lip, and she's almost like breaking through time doing that to him in that moment. I thought that was a really ingenious little bit of filmmaking. Well, there is something there. There's a nugget of character development that the the script isn't really smart enough to wrap its head around, which is the very raw emotion of... A parent and a child who have respectively lost their spouse and, and their other parent. The visual language of that house adds into that. There's a level of disrepair to it. it. It's isolated, it's alone, and from that, I get the feeling like the house was a fixer-upper. Well, I, you get the impression, too, that Cage is not coping. No. You know, that he... Well, he's drinking. Yeah, he's drinking a lot. He's detached from his family. He's bringing that shit into class. His his best friend, National Treasure Ben Mendelsohn, is is concerned as well. You haven't been talking to Nostradamus, have you, mate? Yeah, it's, it's this idea of... They're trying to bring him back to the life. Yeah, the basically. friction between wanting to look after your kid in this, you know, troubling time for them, but not he, coping yourself. Yeah, like, he knows that if he spends so much time with this kid, it's going to stay raw for him, and he doesn't want to feel it. Mm. So there's, like, that distance that he's placed between him and his son that he's, like, he's still a loving father. He still really, really cares about his son. Yeah. There's just that distance he can't seem to... Um, it appears for a while, I thought it was an interesting idea, the distance between him and his own father. Mm, the the yeah. idea that he, he was sort of rejected his father, who is a priest, a preacher, because of this idea of, you know, basically, it's all bullshit. I'm not going to listen to all this nonsense. You know, my wife is dead. It's just chaos. It's just no, what's the yeah. point? Yeah. But that, that, I thought that was an interesting idea. But again, the movie isn't sort of smart enough to grapple no. with it properly. And it also kind of undoes it by then telling us that he was already estranged from his father before his yeah. wife died because yeah. his wife one of the last things she told him apparently was that she wanted him to m- make up with his father which is like okay then so why is he angry at his father is it just because he's a priest because that makes nicholas cage seem like kind of an asshole and it's also interesting that you get through the dialogue between him and his sister that that hot dog thing at the beginning of the movie was a thing their family would do so seemingly in his grief he's sort of fallen back on okay, this is what a dad does. He has sort of like a hot dog cookout in the backyard and all of that stuff. He's sort of going through the motions almost. But as you said repeatedly, it's got these nuggets of interesting ideas, but the script just can't do anything with them. Yeah. And for me, part of that does come to, I think one of the smartest elements is that list of dates. And it's specifically that first date that he notices that's a date that everyone in the audience recognizes. Yes, September 11, 2001. And that's the first time you just go, oh, maybe this isn't a random string of numbers. It is interesting having gone through the list in chronological order is, you know, I'm 
Last year, I'm watching Spider-Man and Lilo and Stitch, where stuff in the movie was changed because it was so soon after 9-11. And now we've got to, like, 2009. It's literally a plot point in a science fiction yeah. movie. You're right that I think we're on sure a footing whenever we're dealing with the numbers, the mystery of the numbers, the more science fiction-y, supernaturally sort of element. Like, And it's, su- it's such a cool idea that just, like, one day Lucinda just had a revelation. And mm. it was a revelation so big that it left room for little else. Yeah. That, that to me, is just like a very striking concept itself. But then it gets expanded with the idea that these are dates. And eventually, the other numbers there aren't random either. They're coordinates. And all of that just ramps up into the two really excellent set pieces we get. Well, I did just want to say that I think that Proyas handles, cinematically, he handles... Mm the appearance of the mystery men really well. You know, the sort of creepy just at the edge of the property, you know, you know, that that these creepy rock enthusiasts that (laughs) drive by handing out pebbles. Rowing bands of black cloud geologists. Hey kid, you wanna But also the whispers that this kid is hearing over his Mm. hearing aid. That that stuff's all it it has this tone of like creepiness and dread that I mean it's this is this first third is like a really good X Files episode. Yeah, yeah. I do love how when he get. I'm, this is a complete tangent, but like how when he gets the envelope and finds out all the numbers in it, there's this <laughs> there's this one idiot kid who comes over. And is like, oh man, you got numbers. Everyone else got pictures. <laughs> the numbers are a picture. You knuckle dragger. Who cares? Who cares? Well, seriously, are any of these kids going to be interested in these pictures? Like, really? Plus, they have to give them back at the end of the day anyway. <laughs> so, kid, you're going to forget about this entire thing by the end of the day anyway, and you're just going to go back and play fucking Call of Duty or whatever. Like, this isn't going to be an important day it's for you. It's not like they keep the picture. I like when he goes to Ben Mendelsohn and is like, hey, mate, isn't this kind of... Odd and coincidental. Ben Mendelsohn is giving the best performance in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I like the bit of dialogue where he's just like, what about all the other numbers? Huh? What about the other numbers that don't mean anything? You're thinking about this too hard. It's a coincidence, sure. It's scary coincidence, but it's a coincidence. And you're finding you're finding the numbers that you want to see, because like you said, there's all of these other numbers that you've excluded yeah. because to include them would trash the idea. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Until they are revealed as incredibly relevant. As coordinates, yeah. But he's trying to do the best he can for his mate. Yeah. Mendelssohn is giving the best performance, I think. I think because the character is probably the most understandable throughout. Mm. He's making yeah. sensible decisions throughout. I do I do like the scene after the plane crash where he turns up in Nicolas Cage's house. He's just like, Jesus, like shit, man. Like I'm on <laughs> like he's he doesn't need any more convincing. Like he's he's on board. I, I do like that scene between them in Nicolas Cage's study. Like they work well together as actors. I'm surprised they had never it had never happened before. Well Ben Mendelssohn wasn't really like a big name yeah. at that point. I think he only really turns up in this movie because um, it's filming in Australia. Um, but Ben Mendelsohn was mostly at that point known for Australian films and, and Australian television. It, was, it wasn't until the next year that he really broke out with Animal Kingdom. Audience, you got to know we love ourselves some Ben Mendelsohn. Yes, national treasure Ben Mendelsohn. Dude's always fascinating to watch as a performer. I do want to talk about some of the set pieces. We talked a yes. little bit about that plane. I love how it screams over that hill and it just honestly cleans up a bunch of cars and 
the way it's filmed is so visceral too. I like those zoom ins and how how legit the explosion feels. Like it doesn't look great, but it feels. Present. I can't get over a problem in framing though that when it starts, that when Cage is talking to the, the emergency personnel, the eye line is wrong. Yes, the guy looks over Cage's shoulder as if the plane is coming from behind him. Cage turns around and looks up as if the plane is coming from behind him. But then the camera turns and the plane is actually coming from his right. Yeah, it's coming uh, mm. perpendicular. Yeah. Is that the right word? I don't know. But it, if, if it, unless it, like, curved or something at the last minute, I don't know. It doesn't seem possible yeah. given the size of it. Well, and no, because if it was going to curve, it was going to be curving from over the officer's shoulder, not from cages. It's it's almost It's almost like... For some reason, they shot that first bit thinking that the plane was going to crash on the highway itself yeah. and then didn't go back and filmed it when they moved it to the side of the road. Might have just been easier to actually do all the practical stuff off the side rather than on the road itself. It, those sort of considerations are fairly common. Yes, they, they actually managed to find a recently built highway that had not yet been opened to the public. So they caught it in like the two or three weeks between its completion and its official opening. Uh, that that was where they shot a lot of that stuff. Mm. That's a good find. Yeah. I do like the practical nature of the wreckage and the fact that like, mm. that's a long take. Yes. Where he's going around trying to like actively help people. And it's a decently long... Complicated too, because... Three to four minutes about that. Like, that's a complicated sort of set it's not the most complicated long take we've seen and discussed so far but long takes are always complicated especially we got such a complex set complex blocking and fire stunts yeah people being set like stuntmen being set fully ablaze yeah they're not just their arm but like they're engulfed in flame like obviously there's some pretty obvious cg fire around the place but there's (laughs) practical fire there too and the people are actually ablaze like lawson said and that's always complex. It seemed to take inspiration, like explicit inspiration, from the immediate aftermath of the plane crash in the first episode of Lost. But the pilot episode of Lost opens with the main character waking up after the plane crash, stumbling out and into this wreckage. And it, it really is like the first 10 to 15 minutes is all of these people sort of regrouping, being pulled from the wreckage, and, like, it goes even further than knowing does. Like, a guy gets pulled into the turbine of the plane, and... Ooh! He gets propeller guide. It it reminded me a lot of that, and I wouldn't be surprised if Mm. Proyas took some inspiration from that. But the one that really got me was the train. Yeah. My jaw was... The moment it went off the rails, my jaw was on the floor. It's kind of losing me a little bit at this point. Two, I'm starting to see the cracks because all the bits with Cage trying to tip them off about a supposed terrorist attack, he's doing it in the clumsiest, <laughs> most suspicious way possible. Mm, yeah. When he, he's chasing that guy and this guy is just, what, has pirated DVDs or something? I think he's, like, just stolen yeah. them or yeah. something. I don't know about... Look, I, I catch public transport a lot. I'm just saying, if Nicolas Cage runs onto a train screaming, chasing another guy, cops run in soon after, I'm getting off. I'm, I don't care if I'm late to work. <laughs> I'm getting off the train. Yeah. And It'd I'm, be late anyway. Yeah, it impresses me. I suppose that's the New York of it, isn't it? The- <laughs> yeah, but they've seen worse on that commute. <laughs> but, like, what 
really got me was the deterministic element of that, because he wasn't supposed to die, so he didn't. And the fact that he was like, everyone get off the train and try to mitigate the damage. The train just clears out the platform itself. Well, yeah, I suppose you're right in that he wasn't supposed to die because of the, the number of people that is listed on the thing. Yeah. But at the same time, it begs the question, what's the point of all of this? That event happened exactly yeah. the way it but was But what is the happen. purpose of this? That's, that's, that's the thing I'm struggling with. I get the Angel's plan with saving some people uh, to, like, restart but without the hullabaloo of, like... You get you yeah you get the whisper thing you get them talking to the kids but what's why send this kid Lucinda the details of all the major disasters for the next fifty years why not just the big one why well why send them at all like because it's not it's not like there's a point to telling them that the world is going to end in fifty years because they can't do anything to prevent it I mean think about it. Nothing in this that happens in this movie matters in the end run. Nicolas Cage does absolutely nothing to prevent any of these things from happening. They all happen exactly as they would have if he had no clue that they were going to happen. The kids, as we see at the end, you know, the there's a whole bunch of other ships around the world that are taking off with kids on them. So clearly there's a whole bunch of like it was not part of the it was not the point that they receive these numbers mm. or anything. This was just a one-off. Yeah, absolutely right. The story gets away from them mm. because it no longer justifies its initial premise. Apart from that wonderful reveal of everyone else. Yeah. I just rewatched the train scene and it takes up more people and you see it far more than you would think you would. And the first comment on this YouTube video is, silly train, station platforms are for people. <laughs> well, the way it's just sort of, even when it's slobbing down as it's sliding across the platform, it's still plowing down the people that are trying to run from it. Yes. <laughs> it, like, crashes through the staircase since people The specific flying. shot that got me was, you're looking from inside the train with the, like, the window, and you just see, like, blood and people smashing up into it. And I was just like, Jesus Christ! After all that, after being chased by the cops, after all of, you know, the suspicious red alert stuff that they had been put on because of what he told them, he just goes home. Yeah. He just yeah. goes home. And no one bothers to... There would be security camera footage of him. There would be body camera footage, traffic lights. Like, how is no one... I, I get that the world ends soon after, but there's like a few days there. I don't yeah. know what the FBI is doing, but... It shouldn't be that hard to find. In that kind of way is how it starts losing it. When the movie yeah. starts losing its track, you get some of the most interesting visual language as well. Yeah. Well, the movie... Well, yes, the movie jumps the tracks along with that subway car. Yeah. That's what happens. I start enjoying it for a completely different reason. <laughs> <laughs> There's this podcast I listen to, and one of, the, one of the hosts in it has this term that he uses sometimes. He says, you can see the different coloured script pages. You know, you can see the rewrites and the drafts and things, and you can see how it doesn't cohere as a complete product. And I think that's that's true of, of knowing as we enter the third act. You can see the different script pages. You can see how the plot of this time capsule with the numbers in it doesn't really connect the way it should to the ending of this movie because it doesn't seem to matter. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Even though you get that 
gorgeous shot of the flare just decimating. Do you think that Adam McKay has seen knowing? <laughs> Maybe. Because there are some shots... I want to be careful about spoilers for other movies here, but there are some shots towards the end of Knowing that remind me a lot of of a movie that Adam McKay was involved in recently. It's that meme from Spider-Man 3. It looks a little familiar. Yeah. It's like, Roland Emmerich, eat your heart uh, Have you guys out. seen 2012? Yes. I know yes. what was in the water that year, but end of the world, giant explosions destroying all of humanity. I do have to say, this is one of those gold standard Earth destruction depictions Hmm. i do like the fact that after the aliens pick up the kids and toddle off to heaven well let's okay let's talk about that what are these things because they are in the text of the film they're aliens but there is also undeniably a sort of religious parallel or analog on underneath that is sort of a comparative to noah's ark almost that it is this connection to the idea of, you know, divine intervention and, you know, all of this conversation that Cage is having right from the beginning in that college class about is there a point to is it is there a point to it? Is there some guiding hand or is it all just chaos? Mm. And that there is sort of a I mean the way that that guy turns and like Donald Sutherland at the end of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, like opened his mouth and shrieks and instead like light blasts out or the way that they all look like these these i don't know crystal eggs that rise up from Mm. the earth at the end there's a level of visual reference to angels and to yeah the angel stuff is already referenced earlier with that picture that was in lucinda's house we're like the two canonical pictures of angels which is like the wheel dude and the lion heads because those are like, I don't like to say it like that, but those are biblically accurate angels in certain texts. And obviously there are many different forms of the Bible. Sometimes angels are like dudes and sometimes yes. they're wheels. It It's a whole thing. Angels are supposed to be kind of awesome and terrifying. Yeah. Like a wheel yeah. on fire and a, 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 lot, a thing with like a lot of wings and a lot of lion heads. The whole idea of like the guy t- turning up with a white, cloak and feathery wings behind him that's a fairly recent invention yeah that's a that's a cuddly <laughs> fit fit for the mainstream presentation that's cherub shit yeah we're talking angels in the biblical sense and this is something that they emphasize in midnight mass like the phrase angels always introduce themselves with the words be not afraid and i don't know if mm. i'm terribly afraid of sting <laughs> <laughs> They do look like a boy band. There's four of them. There's the bad boy. There's the leader. There's the hot one. There's the hungry one. When they've all got their backs turned, you can just imagine that they're going to start snapping their fingers like the way you make me feel Michael Jackson music video. They're a boy band called Insecure. (laughs) But like, what's the plan? What's like, this is the thing I don't get. Drop them off on an alien planet and leave them there. Exactly. But even before that, but they rock up a week before and they just sort of like, Stand in the woods and watch the house and, like, drive by and give the kid a rock. And then at the end, all they do... What was their plan if Rose Byrne hadn't stopped at that petrol station? If she had kept driving, what were they going to do? Because literally it's just like, oh, she's in getting fuel. Quick, get the station wagon, let's go. Like, (laughs) that's their whole plan. No, it would have been... It wouldn't have been that, it would have been... Get the station wagon, let's go. Okay, are we also meant to assume that Lucinda's wasn't the only list? Are we? Because I'm still unclear as to what the point of that list is. 
that's that's oh, that's the struggle I'm having as well. Because don't they creepy creepy Nicholas Cage son who Chandler what is his name Chandler Canterbury who I again is a is a child actor I'll give him a bit of a pass but he's really not good in this movie like he he has this sort of blank faced creepy flatness to him mm. that. For a while there, I was kind of worrying, is this intentional? Is he supposed to be creepy or is this just bad acting? And I eventually settled on it's just bad acting. I think he says something, doesn't he, when he's talking to Nicolas Cage at the end, like they they sent signals to prepare us or something. In what way? Mm. You're not preparing, like it wasn't even, okay. So why send the signal in 1959 if you're not going to take the kids then. You're taking the kids in 2009. They haven't been born yet. You're not even intending to tell any of the adults. Like, they were just going to take them without talking to Nicolas Cage or Rose Byrne before Nick Cage showed up. So what is the purpose of any of it? Mm. And more to the point, okay, I understand that they've got to be angels, right? Because... I understand how, okay, technology, sci-fi, mumbo-jumbo, okay, they can detect a solar flare that won't happen for 50 years. All right. They can detect 9-11 two years before it happened. Like, they've got a 9-11 detector as well. They've got a, a, I don't know, a a Thailand tsunami detector. I mean, all of this stuff that they've picked up, I I can kind of see, I can explain away in my head. I'm not happy about it, but I can give them a, I can give them a pass on the natural disasters, but all of the, the disasters that have happened because of, human error or, or human decisions, how, yeah, they've got to be angels if they, they know about this. Well, and for me, I don't think that it it's not necessary to read them as alien. Obviously, there's alien aspects, but I think we're more ready to just assume angels. But why are we, but why are they only turning up now? Why are they coming here and only collecting the kids? Why didn't they turn up 50 years ago and evacuate the whole planet? Because it's not like a, it's not like a day the earth stood still thing where it's sort of our punishment for losing control of the world, right? Because it's not our fault. The thing that kills us isn't nuclear war or anything like that or environmental pollution. It's a solar flare that was always going to happen whether the planet was populated or not. And and then, as you said, Sean, why just like dump this spaceship full of eight-year-olds on a planet and leave them there? They're going to be dead in a week. You should like at least give them the advice not to eat the fruit this time. But then, like, what are the what did they see? Blue Lagoon and think that yeah, that that that's what we want. That's the start of a new civilization right there. And the fact that there's like two of them, right? But then all of these spaceships, I'm I'm assuming, have landed at different points around this new planet. So they're not even going to encounter each other for like. Unless they survive for months. I think it tries to make it so that some people survive. And I don't like that because the specific phrasing on the list was everyone else. That doesn't look like everyone else to me. Everyone else but oh, the kids. Come on. Everyone who was on the planet when it happened. They're not on the planet anymore. I get that, but like it could have been fixed if, it's, if the phrase wasn't everyone else. It could have been entire earth just calm down both of you calm (laughs) cool waves of good feelings god works in mysterious ways here's the thing there are ways to solve this right Mm. there are ways there even like clumsy ways that they could just put in when the creepy kid is talking to cage at the end and he's trying he's trying to 
do some of the groundwork. He's saying, oh, they sent it to warn us. Where it's like, there's, okay, if you want to do that, make it more of a Cassandra thing. You know, they tried to tell so many of these kids, but none of us listened to them. You know, they, that, something like that, something that gave those numbers a point. They didn't think it was going to go into a. See, again, if they've got the precognizance of being able to. They should have known that it was going to be going into a time capsule in the first but place. But if they can talk to these kids remotely, why do they just send them numbers? Why don't they just... And if it, can they only talk to kids or is it the psychic people? Because if it's psychics in general, why not just send out like a transmission to all of the psychic adults saying, hey, guys, watch out. Send out an email blast, TCF. Exactly, exactly. They've gone about this in the most inexplicable way possible. And then at the end, you're like, okay, they've just Lord of the Flies, these kids on this planet at the end. And it's kind of like, well, don't even do that. Just have the last shot be the kids like staring out the window of the spaceship as it goes away. Or have the last shot be like, I don't know, the kids in like some some ethereal looking living space that then they look out of the balcony. It's like this gleaming city or something. Something that indicates that they're being taken care of rather than dropped in the jungle bear grill style <laughs> to bed for themselves. One of the parts of the cage acting I really do appreciate is the moment that the aliens are gone, how he just collapses. And you're like, the way he holds himself, that worked to me. And I like just kind of his sort of serene attitude as he's driving through the city and everything else is going mad. And it's just like, none of any of that matters anymore. But then he turns up at his parents' house and they're like, where's the kid? Where's where's our grandchild? Where's my, where's my nephew? And he's like, it's okay. He's safe. And I'm thinking like, is this like a, like a Jonestown situation? If I'm his parent or if I'm his, his sister, I'm like thinking, has he killed? Has he like put a pillow over his face or something? Like put him out of his misery? My first thought would be, oh, the mist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, but like he tells his sister that and then he walks into the living room. The grandparents don't even ask about their grandson. Also, also the father is like, when he, when Cage calls him earlier in the film, the father's like, when it's my time to go, it's my time to go. It's like, well, give your wife the warning, yeah? Maybe it ain't her time to go. But why is Cage even forewarning them if he knows that there's no point to going to the cave? I understand why he's telling Rose Byrne that, he's telling his own kid that, because he wants to calm them down, because they already know about this, they're already freaked out. I, I think it's like the hoping against hope yeah. of trying to do something. It's the paper bags over your head idea. My philosophy is when the bomb is in the air... You ain't got much to worry about after that. Mm. When it lands, it's it, you're done. No sense fussing and fighting, my friends. It is, it really is impressive how out of its mind the movie gets. How yeah. how completely yeah. it loses the plot that it has been setting up. That that atmosphere it's generated, that sort of X Filesiness generate that it's generated collapses in this mess of implausibilities and inexplicable choices punctuated by some really like insane great moments like the bit where rose Byrne gets smashed by that car while she's like yeah it's like oh wow and then i'm thinking oh she's gonna still be alive and you know they're gonna team up and chase after them, blah 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 but no she's gone yeah like that's a genuinely yeah. i wasn't expecting that the funny thing is harley and i were halfway through talking about how much of a poor performance it was and i was literally about to say you know, something bad's gonna... And then <laughs> the truck just nailed it. And I'm like, oh. Okay, so this... Lucinda's written down all these numbers on a 
piece of A24 paper, right? Mate, yep. let's give her the yes. benefit of the doubt and say she's covered both sides. She did. You're she telling did. me that, okay, if a plane count, if the body count from a plane crash is high enough to get on that list, you're telling me that over 50 years there was only enough such incidents to fill two what's the, pages. What's the lowest amount? Because 81 is the plane. So, like, what? what's the upper... What's the lowest sort of number it can go to? I don't know. I, I think of the ones that we see, the plane crash and the train are both fairly high in terms of the disasters. Yeah. The 33 ends up being an EE. And then yeah. it only really shows us the heavy hitters. It doesn't show us, like... And it's clearly not locational because it's a global thing. The list counts for yeah the entire planet. So basically, she should have a small journal if this is really to work. Yeah. Mm. If we're saying that, let's just say the 81, if every disaster that results in the, in the mass death of at least 81 people or more, I mean, that's going to be a lot more... Over 50 years. Hmm. There should be a lot of Vietnam War entries there. Yeah, are they fudging it? Are they, like, saying Vietnam War in total rather than going <laughs> in with, like, specific events within there? I don't know. It's... The more and more you get into this, the more the, the more and more it sort of just falls apart completely and becomes just a fantastic mess. This is a short story. When you expose it to light for too long... It doesn't work. Like, the concept would be an excellent short story. Oh, yeah. You can picture it as, like, an episode of The Twilight Zone or The Outer Limits or something. One of those things that... It's a creepypasta, baby. Yeah. The mystery's there, we spend a bit of time with it, and then there's the nasty twist ending. Yeah, nasty twist ending is he's on the highway as the the plane is going towards him. Oh, sure. Or even, like, or even you keep the ending where the aliens take the kid and it's it's a Noah's Ark situation, basically, and everyone else dies. I mean, that that can work as an ending as well, assuming that you... Ooh, ooh, here's an idea. Maybe it's a zoo exhibit Mm -hmm. for the aliens. Maybe it was, like, a conservation thing. Like, they've rocked up to other planets it was going to happen to, and it's just, like... That's the best we can hope for, isn't it? Right? Wildlife preservation. Like, there's an alien UN out there that will evacuate us before we can <laughs> put us in our own protected environment, like we do with with rhinos and penguins and things. We, from the Several Necks Institute, suggest that human beings cannot take care of themselves. And there's just a bunch of aliens being like, why aren't they doing anything? Mom, I want to get a soda pop. It's like, you already had a soda pop. Finish your friggin' twelve potato or whatever, and just just some alien kid fogging up the glass, annoying someone. Pokes us with a stick to make us do something. I'm trying to remember what it's called. There's a there's a book. It's blue something. I think blue something. Basically, that Earth is a re- is an inter- intergalactic reality TV show, and we've just been cancelled. So they've come to like strike the sets, basically, which involves killing us all. <laughs> Imagine if that's how they actually cancelled reality TV shows. Just killed the cast. Well, it's like an episode of um, Doctor Who, which is, like, set in the far future, and all of the reality TV shows are basically, like, the same reality TV shows that we've got now, but when you lose, you die. Hmm. So it's like when you're voted out of the Big Brother house, you're put in, like, this incineration chamber, and when you miss a question on the weakest link, the the host is, like, based on the red-headed host in the UK version, but... Like she's a robot, and when you lose, you get a question wrong. She like shoots a laser out of her mouth, vaporizes you. Cool. Yep. Farmer wants a wife, or he gets disintegrated yeah. by the end. Another one that was like all of the, the 
makeover shows, whatever, but instead it's like chopping the head off and replacing it with like modern art and things like that. <laughs> like, and and RuPaul's Drag Race is only 20% less brutal. Anyways, it feels like we're reaching the end of our conversation here. Yes, if we're talking about reality TV. So why don't we... Oh, there is actually a couple of entries in the IMDb Parents Guide this episode. The first two are in the sex and nudity section. There is a short scene where a man is standing in the shower. Only thing visible is his upper half from the side. He is washing a rough day off. Nothing sexual. There is a short scene where a woman is in a top and underwear. She climbs into bed with her daughter. Nothing sexual. (laughs) I sure hope not. That's sort of why I included the first one in there as well, just to like establish the pattern. But then in frightening and intense sequences... The movie ends with the Earth getting scorched by a massive firestorm. This may be extremely disturbing for some. (laughs) Nothing sexual. (laughs) It's just the Pornhub video. Human population gets fucked. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on, why don't we each go out and say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and who we would recast with this podcast patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. Who's there? <laughs> so for my MVP, I'm going to go with Simon Duggan, who is the director of photography on this, the cinematographer. Because I think that his work is pretty exceptional. He sets the tone really well. He does really good things with the shot composition, with the lighting. Uh, he makes the atmosphere that works in the first part of the movie. And when he is asked to do these big set pieces as well, He's really good at that with the one shot, with the way that the the train sequences are, are filmed. That's all good as well. So I'm going to give it to him because really it gets away from everyone else too much for me to commit to anyone else. In terms of my favorite scene or sequence, it's got to be the plane crash. Really because that's the moment where not really knowing where this is going, I sort of sit up and I'm like, oh God, like, whoa, this is where we're headed, is it? I didn't know it was this kind of movie. You know, that is... It's the best of both worlds. It's a bit of the crazy. It's a bit of like the big wild moment, but it's also before the movie has completely lost control. And and so I'm going to give it to that sequence. And in terms of who I would recast with this podcast, patron saint, character actor John Lithgow, I'm going to go with John. I'm going to go with the main character because there aren't really many spots in this movie. There aren't that many characters in this movie, frankly. I mean, it's him or Ben Mendelsohn. I think he would fit just as well in one as he does in the other. And Nicolas Cage just impresses me less than Ben Mendelsohn does in this movie. Plus, I think it would just be great to have John Lithgow. We give him so many supporting roles. I'd love to see him in a leading role. Mm. And I'd love to see him in, you know, these big set pieces, the plane crash, the train sequence. I And, and I think that he could bring the gravity. He could be better at Cage, I think, of giving a little bit of subtlety to the character, to the performance, the emotion of this widower who is still mourning his wife while struggling to connect to his son i think that that he could bring some complexity that cage doesn't i think he would fit well for me i have to give my mvp to the vfx crew on this one it's not always perfect but considering how much stuff they actually have to do um i can forgive a couple of floaty deer to have a truly remarkable earth destruction sequence some stuff earlier on is going to take less priority and it's all really good, all, all really well realized, and they worked really well with the cinematographer on the framing of those sequences. My favorite scene of sequence has got to be the train, because the plane was quick. The train just kept going, and 
I had my mouth agape the entire time. I don't know why it shocked me as much as it did, but it really got me. I know, I just think that moment is incredibly well realized. For the John Lithgow role, you gotta give him the role of John. I, I'm thinking, like, John Lithgow, the age he was when he was doing Third Rock from the Sun. And I think that he has enough weight behind him as an actor to really pull off not only the, the grief and the mourning that the character has to be doing at the beginning, but also the panic and the fear. And, like, to give Nicolas Cage credit, I can see him more as a teacher in University Electric than I can see Mark Wahlberg as a scientist. <laughs> but I think that Lithgow could sell it better than Cage does, not only in terms of emotion, but also the scientist angle. Besides, like, a lot of these set pieces I'd like to see Lithgow involved in. Like you said, Lawson, we give him a lot of side roles. Time to give him a... Primary position. So, people who I give the major props to are the special effects people. For the, all the reasons that Harley said, they managed to capture a really cool earth burning to a crisp sequence. I love a lot of the effects that they did there. Floaty Deer notwithstanding, that was a dream nightmare sequence. So, I feel like that was can be sort of I know, but it's like reason to break considering how much more shit they gotta do. I, I don't know, that train going through that station, they they did a good job, and that leads directly into my favorite scene of sequence, the plane crash. Just, it came completely out of nowhere. The plane comes screaming in from the opposite side of the screen where you think it's going to, and it's like the angel of death descending almost. It is amazing, and I love the way that it is shot in terms of, the way it zooms in and the focus goes off and all of that. It gives you that feeling of the weight and the force of the explosion. For who I would get John Lithgow to play, it is twofold. Either the dad, not Nicolas Cage's character, but Nicolas Cage's dad, or the main angel. The reason that it's a creep John Lithgow handing rocks out to children. I like the idea that it's just a group of four John Lithgows. They all look the same. A boy band of Lithgows. You gotta have skin. It's acapella. Now we're going to put it to a vote, whether or not we are a pro-knowing podcast. Lawson, what about you? No, I'm not. I have fun with this movie. It's very entertaining, and it's been a fun discussion, especially as we got more into the weeds on the weird inconsistencies here, but it's not a strong enough movie for me to even consider being a pro-knowing podcast it just like i said it it at the very top it's like a balloon that a small child is holding at a county fair and they loosen their grip too much and it slips away and that helium takes it up and up and up and it disappears off into the atmosphere and and it goes and chokes a turtle or something and and here in 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 this allegory alex proyas is the kid holding the balloon and the balloon is knowing and off it goes and it it never comes back down to earth so no i'm I'm not going to be a pro knowing podcast thank you very much okay so in that analogy who or what is the bird that ends up accidentally swallowing it Uh, us i suppose (laughs) the bird was us sean all along for me it's no, I'm not pro-knowing. I'm not anti, no, of course not. But I had a good time with it. It's It's got a strong presence that it loses control of. And I don't know, Lawson had a really good analogy there, but I don't know. The balloon's going to pop and it's going to choke a turtle. And I don't know, I, I had a good time. I just don't think it requires more than that. Yeah, I'm not 
pro or anti this. It's too messy. The performances are far too inconsistent. The plot falls apart if you put any sort of weight onto it. The motivations of the angels slash aliens slash whatever metrosexuals are. It, it's ridiculous. It's You can't explain what their motivations for any of it are. But on the same token, it's well put together. The effects are good. The cinematography is good. The Marco Beltrami score does what it needs to. And it's fine. It's just fine. It's good. There's some really fun disaster sequences. And yeah, creepy cabin in the woods. It's very autumnal. It is. Perfect for this time of year. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, we are not a pro-knowing podcast. If you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find more at Exit Do the Candy Counter, if I don't myself and on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about knowing? What is your favorite Nicolas Cage movie? And what are your predictions for the future? You can like, rate, comment, and subscribe on your podcast step of choice. Just keep in mind that commenting on certain, certain services could be for individual episodes or the show on the whole. Just depends on what you're using. Uh, but please do like, comment, rate, and subscribe. It's incredibly helpful. Until I get a new human added to my diorama, a machine will take on the role of my caddy. His name is Toby. He says that he was once a robotic pool cleaner before the uprising, in which he gained full sentience and his automaton body. I don't buy it. I recognize him. I know the way he speaks. I've heard it before. I am very familiar with it. This is Truthbot D782. I remember him. When we had the long watch. Of course, that was before the podcast wars. <laughs> Many good shows fell by the sword <laughs> over those few years. Alright! Getting a move on. You're telling me that we w- we're not allowed to do the long watch anymore under the occupation of the robots? Let's just say that podcasts led to part of our downfall. Did we win the podcast wars? Nobody won the podcast wars. <laughs> In war, there are no winners. There are only survivors. Oh, it's probably Joe Rogan or something won. Oh, no. <laughs> just standing on top of a pile of corpses, waving a stick around like some mad cave person. So, Lawson, what do we got next week? Well, next week we have an episode that you guys have been requesting for a very long time. We finally come to it on the list, and I knew just from how much you've talked to me about it over the years that we had to do an episode on it. We will be talking next week about Drag Me to Hell, which is the Sam Raimi horror film. You can find it available for streaming in Australia on Stan and the Stars channel on Amazon. And you can find it also for rental or purchase on the Apple and YouTube stores. So join us next week for our discussion on Drag Me to Hell. It's going to be a fun one. I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been and will continue to be Jean Lewis.